Hey, how you doing? Uh, this is Gene Versa with the Waffle Press Podcast. I'm with Flint Dilly. How are you, good sir? Oh, real good. How you doing, Jim? Yeah, it's good to have you. Um, first off, how is it being back at conventions? You were telling me earlier. Oh, I'm loving it. I mean, we're sitting here and everybody's wearing a mask, except at this moment I'm not because you wouldn't be able to hear me if I was. But, uh, but other than the masks, uh, it feels like a convention and it feels like the world has opened up again and people seem to be having a great time. Yeah, no, it's just, um, you know, just the vibe of just being in convention around yeah. people that enjoy, uh, you know, the same interests as you. It's just a good feeling. Yeah. So, um, Clint, just going right into it, um, the Transformers, the movie, um, one of the, um, you know, that's one of the big land- landmarks of the franchise. Can you tell us a little bit just about writing it, just working on it and everything? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, it was, uh, it was not long after... I, I would point everybody to my book if they want the full. It's called the Games Master. I'm not really trying to sell them as much as I'll leave stuff out, and, it, and it, it's pretty exhaustive about that. But anyway, um, so I was working at Sunbow. I was on GI Joe, and one day I, I think it was Joe Bacall, who was Bacall of Griffin Bacall Sunbow, uh, said, "Hey, uh, we want to move you over to." Uh, Transformers because we're losing it to some show called GoBuds. And, you know, I, I didn't want to do robots again after my last experience with robots. So, uh, I, I kind of, and I love G.I. Joe. G.I. Joe was so easy. It just came naturally, and Transformers was hard, and, and, all, and, and everything about it was always hard. I don't think one was necessarily better than the other, but I mean, they were. They, uh, they were, uh, it's fine, Bree just brought over more stuff in my books. Thank you very much, Bree. Uh, anyway, um, it's, so uh, Transformers was, uh, you know, at heart. And, and so, but anyway, I moved over. And I, I probably wasn't very far into Transformers. You know, it was second season at that point. And, I, and you know, I was deployed as a producer, as an associate producer. So... What I was doing was doing recording sessions and you know and boards and sweetening. I remember, I remember the, doing the Golden Lagoon. You know, was one of the first ones that, that I was on, um, and I don't remember exactly what I did. I just remember it. probably probably we were recording it. Maybe maybe it was earlier than that. But anyway, uh, and so I'm working on Transformers. I'm getting somewhat familiar with Transformers. And then uh, uh, one day Jay showed up. In my recollection, I'm sure it didn't work this way, but I'll, I'll tell you what I remember. Is it's like Jay shows up in New York with uh, Ron Friedman's first draft of the Transformer movie in his hand and uh, uh, wants to, uh, uh, you know, we have to look at it and figure out, figure out what to do with it. Because bear in mind, Ron's first draft was a warehouse of amazing ideas and incredible visuals, and it really, if you've ever read Ron's writing style, I mean, it's unbelievably poppy and exciting and, and all that. But it was also a first draft, which means you kind of put everybody's idea in there. Yeah. And not every idea belongs to the first script, but I'm sure Joe had a lot of ideas, and Jay, and Tom, and Nelson, and you know, everybody else, and Ron. Everybody had a lot of ideas. And so we had to take, you know, take something and turn it into a producible linear movie. 
event. It was, you know, but a lot of the stuff was there. And oddly enough, the, I don't think the draft that goes around the internet is the first draft. It's really, it, that seems later to me, but I don't know that for sure. Because I think Ron did a second draft himself that, you know, uh, you know came in. But, you know, after Jay and I did. But anyway, so, yeah, so uh, Jay shows up. We read the script, and we just decide, okay, let's come up with just a really linear, let's come up with a real hook and a real linear story and, and just, you know, yeah, you know, just make this a producible, you know, movie. I and mean, we never thought of our things as being written for children. We thought of ourselves as writing for, like, ourselves when we were 12 years old. Uh, and, like, you know, I haven't matured much since then, so it's not hard. But, but, uh, but to me, I would just make it, you know, understandable. Because you're, you're dealing with a few problems right off the bat. I believe there are 130 speaking parts in the movie. You know, because you have to surface all the old toys, introduce the new toys. It's a lot of characters. Yeah, it's a lot of characters. And we knew, you know, I mean, and I talk about this at length, so I won't bore. We knew we were going to be killing characters and all that. You know. and, and didn't anticipate the problems that would cause. But, you know, we knew, okay, this is about the end of one era and the end yeah. beginning of another era and that's why we're making the movie uh, and you know, it's uns- it was totally untested territory nobody ever made a movie out of a currently running TV toy show or I think any other animated show at that moment uh, so we didn't have a model to follow uh, we had an instinct that animation was coming back for movies because that period which was called the baby boom echo and it was when all the baby boom Having children, so it's just. I think it's now basically millennials. Well, yeah, I either late Gen X or millennials. Uh, probably, probably Gen X are watching it. Late Gen X. But anyway, um, so uh, yeah, we hold up in my apartment for a week. Uh, we just did a tear down. We had this idea that that basically um, Unicron and Cybertron were brothers. We, and I always still believe that Cybertron transforms. It's maybe some dirt got on it. But yeah. And, uh, and the, the Autobot uh, Matrix of Leadership was what the key that transforms uh, Cybertron. And we need to transform Cybertron to fight Unicron. Okay, you know, it's like this, you know, brother revenge story or something. Anyway, so, um, so a week later, we walked out with a draft of the Secret of Cybertron, and uh, uh, we thought it was the single most brilliant thing ever written by anybody for any reason. And Joe and Tom didn't really share our enthusiasm, but it ended up being very influential in you know in the movie. I mean, a lot of it you know made it in there. Uh, a lot of it made it into Five Faces of Darkness. I mean, I didn't. I didn't literally take scenes and put them into Five Faces of Darkness, but the ideas stayed, and that in season three. And, you know, a lot of those ideas at the time, like the Transformer movie, weren't particularly popular, but I, but I think they, the whole reason the franchise is alive now and they're still making comic books and movies, it was really more season three than anything else. Yeah. Um, I was going to go back to um, when you were talking about with... Um you know, some of the story decisions you made just killing off characters and, you know, the internet wasn't around back then, but did you guys feel any kind of, um, felt a little like, uh, 
nervous or, you know, you felt you were taking a risk, like, you know, killing off Optimus or... Well, I mean, we knew we were bummed out, but we knew what we thought. I mean, you have to understand, the world works differently than you think it does. And that is that, that you know, Star Wars, it killed off Obi-Wan, and and, uh, um, and we were used to, We thought that... Sorry, excuse me. Sorry, it's been here since seven. Uh, we thought that the, uh, you know, the franchise was endlessly renewable. You know, we thought of it as a sports team. You know, it's kind of yeah. like, you know, you have a million different people have been Los Angeles Rams, you know. And and some of them overlap in their careers, some of them don't. But we thought that the brand was what was important, not the characters, right? You know, as such, we didn't think, we didn't think that we had a core set of characters who have service. And and we, we knew we had, that we had to have to get the '86 or line out, you know, knock off the '85 line. Yeah. So uh, we were used to we were used to getting faxes when they came in faxes at the time, which was sort of you know yeah, I mean think of it as an email that said oh yeah discontinue you know corn dog and uh, you know and uh, cow flop and you know insert you know dog log and. And, uh, you know, whoever, you know, making them fake characters. But, you know, we were used to that. So it didn't seem, you know, ashtrays out, you know, put in uh, dipstick. Okay. And, and so we were used to characters going away, but that wasn't necessarily visible to the viewers, right? Yeah. You know, you don't notice what's not there. But, we, but with 130 characters, you know, you have to, uh, you know, play people up and play them down and give them their big moment. Right. But we did really have a, have a core of characters. You know, yeah. we had, uh, you know, Optimus and Bumblebee sitting right behind me and uh, Dan, Dan Joel Bazan's here. Uh, Joel Bazan. Uh, and uh, he's here behind me. Uh, you know, and the, you know, Dinobots. Yeah, I mean, yeah, Starscream and, uh, you know, Megatron. Yeah, I mean, we knew we had basically the truck. So, uh, uh, yeah, it, it wasn't, bear in mind, it was a product decision before it was a creative decision. How we killed them and exactly who we killed was our decision. But, uh, you know, except for Optimus, I think they always knew the big thing in the movie was Optimus to die. The movie's about these Santa Brothers. Well, that's a great scene, too, because I was going to say, um, it has that great line because it keeps... Uh, being reused in a lot of media, one shell stand with a phone call. Yep. Yeah. Well, that's that. That's the ultimate. Well, I mean, with that, you're, you know, what we're trying to do is, you know, and we were labored on that scene forever. But you're, you're trying to sum up the genre of, you know, two guys fighting, having their final kind. You know, it's like, you know, Holmes and Moriarty, or you know. Yeah. Yeah, and and you know, and, and I've told the story in the book, but Frank was trying to figure out how to have Superman fight Batman. Frank Miller, the yeah. exact same moment we were doing that, and uh, so it, it's one of these epic moments. And so you want you want that line, you know, that kind of defines the characters and the genre and the scene and the stakes. And you know, I, I remember that Ridley Scott movie, The Duelist, which you haven't seen. It's worth seeing. It's David Carradine. And, Harvey Keitel. Uh, Harvey Keitel. But anyway, so, um, you know, we, we wanted some kind of resonance. You, you wanted, you know, a, you know, a button line. You wanted, 
you know, go ahead and make my day, or, uh, um, you know, it's Clint Eastwood, or even the Dirty Harry scene, where you, you know what you're thinking about. <laughs> I mean, that defined an entire genre, that whole yeah. sequence. Uh, and so, you know, this was sort of, you know, it defined the stage. Yeah. And how epic it was. It's, you know, Achilles versus Hector. Really sets the tone. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, um, going off of uh, that question, speaking of dialogue and lines, there's uh, one line that oddly fascinates me. I'm not sure if uh, you know it when they're um, trying to uh, um, kind of blow up Unicron, where they say, uh, oh, shit, it's the explicit. Can you talk a little bit about oh, that? Hey, that was... That was never in any script. Okay. And you'll notice it's a voiceover line. Right. Dan said it. Uh, voiceover line. And it was put in there for the specific reason they did not want a G-rated movie. It was viewed, if the movie was G, parents would be it. You know, G would just spend, you know, nobody wants to see it. And PG-13 was invented a couple of years earlier. So we wanted to hit PG. So you put in one you know, quasi-curse word, and you get to PG. Yeah. If all the carnage didn't get to PG, but we just wanted to make sure. And maybe the idea was, if that wouldn't, you know, if they didn't need it, they would have taken it out. But it, nevertheless, it is in the movie. Yeah. But no, I never typed shit in, uh, you know, in a script. It was, that was a... That was a post-production business decision. Yeah, no, I mean, um, I've always just kind of been fascinated by that one scene, how you know it got in. So you know, thank you for. Uh, yeah, no, it's, I mean, it was just a business decision. Gotcha. And um, one last question about Transformers the movie before we go on. Can you talk a little bit about um, you know you're working on the film, just the decision to have Orson Welles as Unicron and kind of what he brought to the role. I mean, that was one of his final roles, I think? Well, that was. That was his final role. Uh, and it's really funny. His biographer, he told his biographer here that day, he said, you know, you know what I did today? I played a giant toy or something. Yeah, I think it's like he destroys other toys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. right. And, you know, I mean, he probably did not think of that at the high point of his career. It is entirely possible that that is the most seen moment ever of his career but who knows yeah but it was a week before he died and you know he was not a healthy guy yeah and uh um you know nobody thought he was gonna die well i, I actually did say to hilly i'm glad we got him today uh because you know you know you could tell he wasn't gonna help i shouldn't have said that but, um hilly was sorry basically now called production that production yeah, of course. And um, just kind of changing gears here, how is it like just kind of like working in video games and then just working in film? Well, I mean, I, look, I love them all. I like writing TV. I like writing movies. I like writing video games. I like writing books. I, you know, to me, it's all the same stuff. You know, there's a nuance and you tune, you know, certain things, you know, they're, they're different. I'm not saying they're the same, but I mean... Well, usually when I, you know, do, you know, create an idea or something, you know, I have to figure out what medium to do it in first. Yeah. Pretty much any idea I'm ever going to have is going to work in any medium. And, uh, um, you know, so, I mean, the thing I like about games is, you know, I felt like, you know, a number of times I felt like we're inventing a whole new medium. Everybody knows how to, you know, tell a story in a movie. I feel like we've been doing it for 100 years, but... Like, tell a story in a game, that's a whole different thing. And so that was really fascinating. 
you know, I worked with Gary a lot, you know, and he was already doing that. I mean, the games already had a story. But, you know, so I feel like a number of times we've just invented new mediums and new ways of telling stories and and all that. Now, that may be, you know, self-grandizing, self-important. That's right, true, too. Ourselves. We've done alternate reality games. We've done branching games. We've done interacting games. We've done, you know, fairly linear games. We've done completely deconstructed story games. You know, I've you know, done, you know, pick path games. I've done alternate, yeah, as I said, alternate reality games. So, Did I Ghostbusters? No, Ghostbusters. Yeah. I, yeah, that was, okay, that was much later. That was like in the 90s somewhere. Um, that was a fun project. Did that with John Seward Latin and uh, uh, Peter Wannett, who's our producer, and John Melcher, our producer, too. And, uh, yeah, Ghostbusters was, you know, we, we felt like, well, we're really doing the sequel to Ghostbusters. We're not doing the, uh, we're not doing the, uh, you know, a game of it. And so we got to make up a whole Ghostbusters story. And, and Dan Aykroyd and Harold Ramis were always fairly involved. And, you know, once again, it's a business decision, not a decision we're making. But they, you know, they just, uh, um, when nobody knew where Bill Murray was, or if they could get him, or they could famously like play. Yeah, right. Yeah. You know, he's like finding the Dalai Lama, and you're hearing this, you know, from you know Dan Aykroyd and Harold Ramis. What does that tell you? Did you hear? Uh, I think it's like the story doesn't have a bone or something. Yeah, I, I, I've heard a million permutations of only his manager knows where he is, and only sometimes. Okay, so we got the whole first draft without Bankman. And, you know, that's hard, because he's really the heart of the movie, he's the center of the movie. Yeah. He's what connects. Now, Sigourney Weaver decided she's never going to do a video game. It's the star of but she's not going to do a video game. And uh, so we didn't have her, we didn't have Bill Murray, uh, you know, but we had Eddie Hudson, we had, you know, the... You know, various sort of, you know, villains and villainous anuses from the city. Uh, it's Limer. We had some ghosts. Uh, and uh, so we, we concocted, a, you know, a really good story. I mean, those guys even thought that should, this should have been Ghostbusters, too. Uh, later on. I really enjoyed that game. Like I've, uh, that was one of these, yes, that was a game that just worked out. You know, but anyway, we get down to the first draft. Meanwhile, I think it was Dan Aykroyd runs into Bill Murray at a party. Bill Murray said, so what's going on with the Ghostbusters game? So we get the call that we have to put Bill Murray in, like, that Monday. Yeah. And, and so we put Bill Murray in. And you know what was interesting just as a writing exercise? I thought about this that way before. But the, uh, is, uh, is that... Uh, you know, writing, writing a Ghostbusters game without the main character and then putting him in made us not rely on him, so it made it a better story. You know?